Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Wednesday, September 23rd, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. A new discovery indicates chromium is about a thousand years older than we thought. Why it's sometimes better not to use your full potential on things. A group of chefs trying to make drive-through fine dining a thing. And an Enola Holmes PR stunt from Netflix that's shining a light on women's representation. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Chromium steel, like the kind often used in stainless steel, was thought to have been a modern innovation, only being discovered by Westerners in the 1700s and incorporated into manufacturing in the 1800s. But archaeologists have just discovered chromium in Persia dating back almost a thousand years. New research published in the Journal of Archaeological Science summarizing over a decade of research and expeditions has found evidence of chromium in a 900-year-old crucible. Now, this isn't the same as chrome or even stainless steel as we would think of it in modern times. The crucible only contained around 1-2% chromium. But even that small amount does show, quoting the paper, the earliest evidence for the consistent and intentional addition of a chromium mineral, most likely chromite, to the crucible steel charge, resulting in the intentional production of a low chromium steel, end quote. And quoting Gizmodo, A translation of medieval Persian manuscripts led the research team to Shahak, an archaeological site in southern Iran. Shahak used to be an important hub for the production of steel, and it is the only archaeological site in Iran with evidence of crucible steelmaking, in which iron is added to long tubular crucibles, along with other minerals and organic matter, which is then sealed and warmed in a furnace. After cooling down, an ingot is removed by breaking the crucible. This technique was vitally important among many cultures, including the Vikings. Crucible steel in general is a very high-quality steel, lead researcher Raheel Alipur said. It does not contain impurities and is very ideal for production of arms and armor and other tools. A key manuscript used in the study was written by the Persian polymath Abu Raihan Biruni, which dates back to the 10th or 11th century CE. Titled, in translation, A Compendium to Know the Gems, the manuscript offered instructions for forging crucible steel, but included a mystery compound called rusaktaj, meaning the burnt, which the researchers interpreted and subsequently identified as being a chromite sand. Excavations at Shahak resulted in the discovery of residual charcoal in an old crucible slag, waste matter that's left over after the metal has been separated. Radiocarbon dating of this charcoal yielded a date range between the 10th and 12th centuries CE. A scanning electron microscope was used to analyze the slag samples, revealing traces of ore mineral chromite. Finally, an analysis of steel particles found in the slag suggests the Shahak crucible steel contained between 1% to 2% chromium by weight." End quote. This discovery is significant not just because it turns what many scientists and archaeologists have long thought on its head, but also because, quoting Alipur in a call to Vice, Now we know that if we find chromium in a historical object, we cannot really rule out that object as fake. And second, it gives us an opportunity to provenance steel objects, end quote. In other words, they can use the chromium to source artifacts back to specific steelmaking traditions or production centers. And this is in part because, as Alipur noted, the use of chromium seems to be a steelmaking tradition specific to Persia. Studies have been conducted on crucible steel production centers across India, Sri Lanka, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan, and none of them have shown traces of chromium. 
All of which makes this really feel to me like when the rest of the world found out that Wakanda had been successfully using vibranium for centuries. Fans of the TV show Parks and Recreation may be familiar with a classic Ron Swanson quote, Never half-ass two things, whole-ass one thing. It's a good quote that I often have to remind myself of as I overcommit to too many things. I am the epitome of the phrase, jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none. And while it's definitely good to keep your commitments and try your best at things, there is an argument to be made that sometimes it's much more practical to half-ass something. This is something mathematician and software developer David R. McIver elaborated on in his Substack earlier this month, and I think he makes some good points, especially as it relates to the reality of most people's lives. I mean, how often do you actually have the choice to focus just on one thing? Quoting McIver, Most things that need doing don't need doing very well. They especially often don't need doing well if the alternative is not doing them at all. Often we only have so much time and effort we can spend on a thing, and doing the thing is better than not doing the thing. In general, you should aim to put effort into any given thing proportionate to outcome. Something that is hidden away can be done with an ugly kludge. Something that does not meaningfully contribute to the success of the project can be skimped on. This comes up particularly when there are many things to do and a finite amount of effort to spend. In this case, a refusal to half-ass Note here, he says arse because he's English, but acknowledges that we would say ass in U.S. English, so that is what I will say. Back to the quote. In this case, a refusal to half-ass is not actually a refusal to half-ass. It's abdicating responsibility over which bits to half-ass. Parkinson's Law of Triviality, illustrated with the example that a committee for a nuclear power plant spends a disproportionate amount of time deciding on the color of its bike shed, is essentially an example of this you should probably just half-ass that decision. It's basically fine. End quote. And MacGyver goes on to point out that sometimes feeling like we need to do something with all of our effort to perfection, even if it may be one of the things that truly does deserve that effort, can psych us out to the point that we don't do it at all, or we procrastinate so long that we end up putting in half the effort anyways. He gives the example of only reading parts of a book and calling it done. For some books that maybe aren't exactly what you're looking for, just quickly reading the parts that serve you is okay. Because if you feel like you have to read the whole thing, you might never get to the relevant parts or might just never read it at all. But if you allow yourself to just read some parts, you're getting more out of it than you would otherwise. Now, as someone who's a completionist who feels like he has to read every single word of a book including the copyright, this sounds like blasphemy to me but I do think it's a valid point. And likewise, if you're someone with a tendency for perfectionism, whose job also requires consistently producing a high volume of output, and particularly thinking of more creative works here, not like code that literally won't work with errors, it can be really helpful to remind yourself that not everything needs to be done to your absolute fullest potential. Author, YouTube creator, and entrepreneur Hank Green said a while back that he tries to remind himself that 80% is good enough. In a lot of things, doing it to 80% of your potential is good enough. Like especially for something that you do a lot where you know what you're doing, maybe you also have a little bit of natural talent at it, once you get to 80% done, you're pretty much there. That extra 20% is usually your perfectionist side coming in trying to take it to the next level. And sometimes that's good, but for the vast majority of tasks, you really don't need to do that. 
What you need to do is call it done and allow yourself to move on to the next thing, or take a break. Doing some things with just half or 80% of the effort gives you the time and energy to commit all the way on the things that you need to. So, Ron Swanson wasn't entirely wrong, but I think his quote deserves a bit of a footnote. At FanDuel Casino, we know the only thing better than a win is a free win. That's why we made Reward Machine, the daily free-to-play game that gives you a chance to win up to $2,000 in casino bonus. We've given away over $50 million in free bonuses, and we're just getting started. Every day at 6 p.m., you get three chances to spin the Reward Machine reels. There are three ways to win. One, match any three symbols for an instant win. Two, collect symbols each day for a chance to win weekly prizes. Or three, win up to $2,000 if you collect three trophies, FanDuel has given away over $50 million to hundreds of thousands of people through Reward Machine. So what are you waiting for? Download the FanDuel Casino app by going to FanDuel.com slash PA3 and start playing Reward Machine today. That's FanDuel.com slash PA3. No purchase necessary. 21 plus and present in PA. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable casino only site credit that expires seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash casino. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. We've got drive-through haunted houses popping up this season, a renaissance of the drive-in movie theater, and the next trend might be drive-through dining. Now I know what you're thinking, drive-through restaurants already exist, but those are for fast food. A group of chefs in Los Angeles is trying to make drive-throughs happen for fine dining. In mid-October, those 10 chefs will be partnering with restaurant tech platform Resi to create a 10-course drive-through dinner experience in the parking lot of the Hollywood Palladium. Quoting Fast Company, The event, called the Resi Drive-Through, is sponsored by American Express. Diners will stay in their cars and move through a track made up of 10 stations, where they'll be served one course prepared by each of the 10 restaurants. Guests will be served food in single-use containers and given a tray to eat on, which is theirs to keep. Each car will have its own designated waiter who will guide them through the process. All event personnel will wear gloves, masks, and face shields, and they'll also be tested for COVID-19 before they arrive at the event and will have their temperature taken at the door. The entire experience costs $95 per person and can be purchased in groups of up to four in a single vehicle. There is room for 600 guests over two nights. End quote. Dishes will include a mortadella sandwich with truffle palm fondue, spiced lamb ribs with tzatziki and Armenian spices, and a caramel and ganache tart infused with green tea. This is just a one-time pop-up show for now, but hopes are high that it could be replicated elsewhere and spark a new trend for fine dining. Chef Mei Lin told Fast Company, quote, This could be done in any city. It would require organization and logistics, but it's possible. The new Netflix original movie, Enola Holmes, starring Millie Bobby Brown, Helena Bonham Carter, Henry Cavill, and Sam Cafflin, dropped today. A few weeks ago, I covered the saga of this movie being charged with legal action by the estate of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and the many other books and movies the estate has tried to sue over the years. That's in the August 26th episode, if you missed it and want to look it up. But to celebrate the movie's debut, Netflix has done a pretty cool thing over in the UK. Beside the famous statue of Sherlock Holmes in London, they installed a smaller statue of Enola Holmes, the fictional little sister first originated in American author Nancy Springer's book series on which the movie is based. 
But that is not all. They have also installed temporary statues of several real-life sisters of famous men with statues all around the UK. The statues are all in gold, with the same template of a young woman standing with her arms at her hips in a defiant position, and the bottom of her dress decorated in a colorful pattern thematic of her accomplishments. In Portsmouth, beside a statue of Charles Dickens, now stands his sister Frances Dickens. Quoting Netflix UK on Twitter, Frances Dickens was a talented pianist and singer, who studied at the Royal Academy of Music under a former pupil of Beethoven. Frances was so gifted, the Dickens family prioritized her education over Charles's, as they could only afford school fees for one child. End quote. In Birmingham, beside a statue of King Edward VII, now stands a statue of Princess Helena Victoria, who was a founding member of the British Red Cross and president of the Royal British Nurses Association. In Dorchester, a statue of poet Thomas Hardy is now joined by his sister Mary Hardy, who worked her way up the ranks in education to become headmistress of Piddlehinton Village School, which Netflix notes is something that would have been considered a very significant and respected achievement for a woman at the time. And finally, in Bath, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart is now joined by his sister Maria Anna, Quoting Netflix, Maria Anna Mozart was a gifted harpsichord and forte piano player who toured Vienna and Paris. When playing alongside Wolfgang as a child prodigy, Maria would often receive top billing. But as she grew older, cultural pressures made it impossible for her to continue her career. End quote. And of course, that is kind of the subtext of this whole project. The erasure of women throughout history, and the various cultural pressures and dictates that prevented so many women from achieving their full potential. And while these statues are presumably temporary, as most PR stunts by Netflix are, maybe the UK should consider making them, or ones like them where women can be honored in their own right and not simply as the sister of their more famous brothers, permanent fixtures. Especially because, as of at least 2017, the city of Edinburgh only had two statues of women in the whole city, which actually meant that it had more statues of animals than of women. In fact, overall, quoting a 2018 report from BBC's Reality Check, of the 828 statues recorded in the United Kingdom, 174 of them were female, around one in five. Looking at named women rather than nameless female figures whittles the figure down to 80. Even among the 80 female figures with names, 15 are mythical or fictional. In total, there were 66 fictional female statues compared with 16 fictional males. These fictional men were more likely to be soldiers on war memorials, while many female figures were nudes and nymphs. There were other statuary depictions of women alongside men, but almost all of them were allegorical or generic images rather than honoring a specific woman for her achievements. End quote. And this kind of lack of representation isn't restricted to statues and history books. Despite decent steps forward, like a 2014 BBC initiative disallowing all male panels on comedy shows, Shows for whom contestants are voted for by the public still suffer from an overabundance of men versus women. Take, for example, in the 13-year history of Britain's Got Talent, more dogs have won the competition than individual women. In fact, no individual women have ever won the show, unless you count the two women who won with their dogs. The competition has been won by seven individual men, two all-male groups, two mixed-gender groups, and two women with their dogs. And for anyone who is about to say, but Susan Boyle, 
she didn't actually win. She came in second to the then-all-male dance group Diversity, which, gender dynamics aside, was totally deserved. They remain probably the most talented act that has ever been on that show, full stop. Not to mention one of only two majority black winners ever. But the point is, we have a lot of work to do when it comes to media representation. And yes, this Netflix statue thing is just another PR stunt and is already being criticized as virtue signaling, but, I mean, had you ever heard of Mary Dickens before today? How many people will learn something and think a little bit deeper when they see those statues? Even more so, how many young girls are going to be inspired by the kick-butt Enola Holmes character? Representation opens doors. So that one day, a PR campaign putting up statues of accomplished women beside their brothers would just be redundant because the women were already memorialized in their own right. That's it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go half-ass the rest of my work for the day. I hope you have a good rest of your day, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.